what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Angela Barnes is a comedian and comedy show panellist. In 2011, she won the BBC New Comedy Award and has since toured several solo shows, including You Can't Take It With You, a show based on the death of her father, an atheist, and Angela's own approach to life, which went on to be a successful Radio 4 series. She can now be seen on Live at the Apollo and as a regular panellist on BBC Two's Mock the Week and heard on Radio 4's The News Quiz, where she's followed in the footsteps of her comedy hero, former Humanist UK President Linda Smith. Andrew is also co-host of the less than serious history podcast, We Are History, alongside John O'Farrell. Most importantly, of course, she is a patron of Humanists UK. Angela Barnes, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. I think you're the first person that we've had on the podcast who I know has had a humanist ceremony in their lives, because you, in fact, had uh, a humanist wedding um, performed, I think, by a mutual friend of ours. By lovely Susan Ray. It was the lovely Susan Ray. Radio newsreader Susan Ray, yeah, back in September 2021. So, yeah, last year. So maybe that's a good way of getting into some things because people's mm. ceremonies say a lot about what they believe. So why was it that you chose a humanist wedding to celebrate? Well, so humanism, I first became aware of humanism probably when the comedian Linda Smith passed away. Um, I was a big fan of Linda's. I never got to meet her. It was long before she died, long before I started doing stand-up myself. But I was a big fan of hers. And when she died, you know, like everyone was just distraught. She was so young. She was Mm. 48, I think she was, when she died. And I remember reading, you know, the obituaries and reading about what happened. And they all mentioned that she'd had this humanist funeral. And I didn't really know what that meant. I sort of heard the term humanism, but didn't really know what that meant and so I, I sort of looked into it a bit more then and and it was the first time I'd sort of had a, a word for what I felt my outlook on the world was um, so I was brought up very much by an atheist father and, and, and more than that a, a real rejection of organized religion from my father and my but my mum was brought up quite strictly catholic interestingly mm. um and i would say she is much more um in touch with you know her family some of her family is still quite religious and she's still you know is much more on the fence whereas my dad was unequivocally you know i'm an atheist and i think that religion you know makes bad things happen in the world and that was mm. his opinion and i knew i was somewhere in between the two of them because <laughs> i wasn't I wasn't brought up. I, I did go to a, I went to a Church of England primary school just because it was the nearest one. And I think, right. you know, a lot of us had that. So we had assemblies and we had prayers and we had all those things growing up. And I sort of have affection for those things from a nostalgic point of view. You know, I love a school hymn. 
And I, you know, and even though it contradicts, I'm not a believer. I don't mm. believe in, you know, that the Bible is the word of God. I don't believe those things. But I like a good story as much as the next person, you know, and I have nostalgia for things like nativity plays. And so I knew that my, to, to just completely reject religion, I was like, well, I did get something out of, you know, what whatever that was mm. that I was experiencing. So I knew I was somewhere in between. And I think that the sum of it for me when I read about humanism is that I'm someone who I like knowledge and I like, you know, if I read something, I want to know everything about it. And I get frustrated that I can't know everything about everything sometimes. <laughs> you know? I just, I find it frustrated that there's so much in the universe that I will never know. Um, and so to ask me to believe in something that I don't have any evidence for, I just, I can't do it. Right. That's not to say that I, um, you know, completely dismiss the idea of, of there being anything else, but I strongly feel that there, you know, that there is, that this is the world we're given. This is the world we're in. And if you don't make the most of that, you know, then, then there isn't anything else. So you have to, those principles of science and rationality and, and, making the most of what's here and now what not what may or may not be in some other realm in some other place just seems vital to me because I have evidence of what I can see and what I can feel and what I can you know the things that are around me my fellow people I know they're there so they're more important to me in this life than anything else and and humanism was the first you know when I read about that I just felt that reflected how I felt much more than anything else was it important to you or did you did, was it particularly significant to have a word to describe what you believed and what you thought was that useful for some reason to have that vocabulary I think it is I think the the problem there's a problem with the word atheism for me in that it is so complete and so you know it's atheism so that, that no belief you know an absence of a belief system mm. and the, the one of the problems I have with that is that it really riles people sometimes so i'll give recently i did a gig um with a uh, a stand-up comedian who is also an anglican priest and um and he thought that I, I don't know where he'd read somewhere that i was an atheist i think i you know in an interview or something i'd obviously mm. use that word or it'd been used about me and um, we were chatting before the show and he said oh i thought you'd hate me because i'm a priest you know, and what? I just thought, well, isn't what? <laughs> I said, that's really absurd that you would think that, you know, that to you, yeah. atheist means that I am filled with hate for people who haven't got the beliefs I've got. And uh -huh. I, there was, it's completely the opposite of that. You know, I have nothing but respect for people with different belief system, you know, and, and sometimes even occasionally a bit of envy that people have faith that I don't have. You know, sometimes I think, oh, wouldn't it be nice just to have that utter belief that there's something better when the world, you know. Oh, do you? Do you sometimes think that? Sometimes I do, particularly, you know, at the moment. Are these in difficult, weak moments or? When the news is so relentless, you right. know, and you look at what's going on in the world, particularly at the moment, and you just think, wouldn't it be nice to believe that there's there's a reason for all this rather than the chaos that I in my heart, I believe it is, um, yeah. you know, to think that someone is in charge and that there's a, a reason behind everything would be really nice sometimes, I think. But I can't make myself believe that. I can't, you know, and that's where I, yeah, I need evidence and I need, you know, and I'd rather work with what I've got than the hope that there might be something else.
Why do you think that is? Why do you think that you value reality over hope? I think maybe I'm a pragmatic person. I think it may be... Just naturally. Just naturally, I think. And, and maybe even to do with the way my brain works. You know, I, I am neurodiverse. I have ADHD. I right. I very much need things to be um, clearly presented. You know, I, I like to know where I am all the time. I like to be orientated in space and time. I'm not good with just sort of, you know, I could do spontaneity to a certain degree, but I like to like I say wherever I am I want to know everything about the place I'm in I want to I'm a nightmare to go on holiday with because I can't just go and relax I'm like well I need to know everything about this town that I'm in I need to know everything that's happened here and why this is like this and what you know and why for my job that's great to have a sort of thirst for knowledge um it can be tiring I think to (laughs) to be my friend (laughs) I I mean I completely empathize with you in fact I was at a conference last week where the it was the the country shall remain nameless so that I'm not indulging in national stereotypes but (laughs) there was it was it was sort of a sort of a country that often is quite chaotic about things starting on time doesn't quite tell you where you're going is not very organized and I was absolutely sweating the whole time thinking I don't know where I need to be I don't know what time I need to be there I don't know where I am I don't know where I'm going um and there's a, and you're that sort of person too, are you? You need yeah. the the map, the knowledge, where you've come from, where you're going, where you are, what the facts of the matter are. Absolutely. I'm a compulsive mm. list maker. I need to know, <laughs> you know, I need to see the bigger picture. I need to be able to zoom out and go, right, this is what I'm doing. This is where I am and, and sort of know as much as I can about, I'm not someone who's like, you know, there's those people who frustrate the hell out of me really when they're just kind of, oh, just see what happens. Let's just let it run. Right. I, like, oh, I need to know. I need to have a plan. Is that because you need to be in control or because you oh, just yeah. need to? F- yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm a control freak. Yeah. And my husband would back that up in a heartbeat. Um, I definitely, yeah, I like to be in control. Not to the point, you know, I can delegate or I can, I can sort of, as long as someone's got it covered, I need to know it's covered. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So which was it of all these many uh, different humanist and humanistic beliefs and values that we've talked about so far in the first few minutes of this that that Mm. took you towards the idea of having a humanist wedding? So for me, I think the I've got a big family and we knew it was going to be a fairly big wedding. And I, I, I mean, I knew I didn't want to get married in a church that was never a you weren't that nostalgic (laughs) I wasn't that nostalgic I mean there are maybe if I'd grown up in a you know a place with a specific church that was you know we always went to Mm. or whatever maybe then I would feel differently from a nostalgic point of view but um I don't have a particular church that my family were so I don't have that sense of you know well that's where everyone gets married in my family Mm. or anything like that um, so it, that was never a question. And the same for my husband, really. He doesn't have that either. And he was also, I, I, do you know, I don't even know if he was christened or not. I was never christened. I was never baptised. Um, and so that that was something we both knew we didn't want. And the thing with a, a sort of a registry office ceremony, I think it very much depends where they are, mm. obviously, but I just felt they were a little bit one size fits all. Mm. And, you know, we got married a little bit older. We're in our 40s. It's our first wedding for both of us. And I think the thing when you get married a bit older is you really know who you are. You know, when you, I think if you get married when you're in your 20s, you grow together, you know, and you become the couple that you're going to become or individual people within a couple that you're going to become together. Whereas 
we'd sort of done a lot of growing before we met. And so we have very distinct ideas of who we are and mm. how we wanted that represented. And I felt that what a humanist ceremony allowed us to do was was reflect that in whatever way we saw fit, you know. And so um, it, it was it was such a beautiful ceremony because we were able to, you know, work with Susan on exactly what we did want and more importantly, what we didn't want. You know, we didn't want our guests to be, you know, sitting there looking at their watches going, oh, God, is this still going on? You know, we wanted (laughs) it to be slightly interactive, a little bit more fun, maybe even, you know. And and that's not to say we were frivolous. You know, our vows are just as important and our promises we made to each other are just as important. Yes. But I wanted it to be very much our ceremony, you know, and, and reflect who we are. And not be the same as everyone else's. I think sometimes I look back at weddings I went to, say, in my 20s, and I can't remember which was which. Yeah. You know, they, they were all very similar. The the things that are said in the ceremony are broadly the same. Yeah. And I wanted ours to be just a bit more about us as people, as as adults that we are, because we weren't starting our life. We We were making this decision in the middle of it. And I felt that was a bit different. This sounds a bit like what you were saying before, actually, sort of knowing who you are, where you are, what's happening. Mm. Uh, not control, that's not quite the same, but uh, that makes sound like you were a control freak about your own wedding. But, you know. Oh, I definitely was. My husband <laughs> was definitely. <laughs> but specifically, this is about, I guess, you're giving giving a certain structure and meaning to something, giving a meaning to something that is very personal. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's certain people that might question why we got married, myself included to a certain extent, because I've always known that I didn't want children, that I didn't want to be a mother. Um, and I, you know, both my parents have been divorced twice. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't have this sort of idea of marriage as something you had to do. Um, and so it was never really a priority for me. To, to get married um and I know people feel differently if they're having children maybe or, or you know you're building that sort of typical family unit or whatever but mm. I I knew that I was that wasn't really what I was looking for um but then what did happen I think when I met Matt who I is now my husband um I think I knew pretty quickly that this was different to relationships in the past um, and it was a way of sort of making that declaration, I suppose, which sounds a bit right. sort of arrogant, really, to go, oh, listen, everyone, we're... But I just felt like I had to differentiate what this relationship was compared to relationships I'd had in the past and that this one was, hopefully, for good, yeah. you know. And and um, and it felt important to us to be able to do that with our friends and family um, in a really positive way and not in a kind of... Um, because it was a choice we'd made. It was completely our choice. You know, there was absolutely no, yeah. well, they're having children, so they've got to get married or they've got to get married for this <laughs> reason or, you know, it's just what you do or whatever. I just felt like this is such a, a, a definite choice we're making. You chosen to give it that. that significance in a way. It was, it was yeah. giving it a significance in front of everyone. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And also an excuse for a party. Well, I was going to say it also is, you know, a celebration wasn't it because I saw on all the social oh. media it was like a little festival it was it was wonderful I you know I mean we got married in September 2021 and I think if you want to have a good party <laughs> for your wedding have it at the end of a global pandemic you know <laughs> because 
everyone was in the mood for a party and that the sun shone all weekend and we had a big tent in a field and and it was funny because I think wedding you know people put so much pressure on weddings particularly I think everything has to be perfect and everything has to be done the right way otherwise it doesn't count and my philosophy with our wedding was very much you know as long as we're there and the people we love are there everything else is frills you know so if the cake doesn't turn up if the caterers don't turn up well then we'll get pizza for everyone you know all those things I didn't want to get bogged down yes. in all that stuff and um and the bottom line was I mean yes it took a lot of organizing because we just hired a field and we had to put electricity in and toilets in and generators and whatever else but we had pie and mash out of boxes you know we had I just wanted people to, uh, but what, what did happen was a lot of my guests couldn't quite get their head around what they were coming to because they'd never been to a humanist uh, wedding before and they'd never, um, you know, and my invitations, there was no sort of, you know, I just said, wear whatever you're comfortable in. You know, if you want to wear shorts and t-shirt, that's fine. If you want to wear, and of course all that did was make people fret about, (laughs) you know, what what do I wear? So we had some people in suits, some people in shorts and t-shirt. It was, you know, whatever you're comfortable in. and, and, you know, I think a few people didn't really know what to expect. I think our parents didn't really know what to expect. They were very supportive. They were very, and again, because we're, you know, that much older, we're, we were paying for our own wedding. So it wasn't right. like, you know, they they didn't have any sort of say in it or didn't ask for, you know, didn't want any say. It was very much our our wedding. And um, But absolutely everyone loved it, and particularly the ceremony, you know. And I still mm. get people now when I say, your wedding was incredible, that it was so personal and so fun but still really meaningful you know there was still not a dry eye in the house you know well I'm biased but of course I think our weddings are the best well they are you know they just (laughs) are and I I, I, the the frustrating thing about it is obviously that they're not legally recognized yes in England yeah and Wales yeah in England and Wales which was a slightly frustrating um which means that you know we had to go and do the registry office bit but we just did that as low key as we could it was literally to us that was just the preparation so we could get on with our wedding day. So our anniversary will be the day of our humanist. Yeah, that's what everyone who has wedding. a humanist wedding say. They say, you know, mm. that's our anniversary, that's our day, that's our actual wedding. And it is just yeah. annoying that you, if you want it to be legal, you have to have done that other bit before or afterwards. And well, yeah. the campaigns team is working hard on that. So if people are listening, probably by the time people hear this podcast, they will be legal. I hope so. I really hope so. Because I think that like to us, obviously, that humanist ceremony is the ceremony that counts. Mm. And the fact that in the eyes of the law, we got married two days earlier before we did frustrates me a bit, you know. And um, so I'm really pleased for people in the future that won't have that sort of that slight thing in the back of their head that goes, yeah, but that wasn't real, was it? Yeah, or a slightly annoying older relative mm. saying, "Which where when was your real wedding?" You yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> or just sort of seeing it all as a bit of a farce because well, they've already done the, yeah. the, the legal bit. Yeah, you know, yeah. what's the point in all this fuss? Um, <laughs> you know, so I'm really, yes. really hopeful that that won't be the case very soon. Hi, this is Andrew, appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from Humanist UK, the national charity working on behalf of non-religious people to advance free thinking and promote a tolerant society. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, Humanist UK or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider giving us your support or joining as a member. 
Why, why did yeah. you go into comedy? Oh, my goodness me. Wow. Um, so I was quite old in terms of, of stand-up comedians, really, when I started. So I'd always been a massive comedy nerd, you know. Like right. I said, you know, I was a, You're big a fan, fan of Linda Smith. I was a radio comedy fan. And I would listen with my dad, loved comedy as well. And that was the sort of thing we would do together, listen to radio comedy, watch uh, Monty Python, you know, things like yeah. that. And, um, and then as soon as I was old enough, I'd go and watch live comedy as much as I could. And, uh, yeah, I was just a, a sort of a bit of a nerd about it, really. And then I used to do a little bit of Amdram, like community theatre and stuff. I was very involved with the community theatre in South London and I used to do stuff there. And um, there was a guy I was seeing at the time was sort of doing a bit of stand-up comedy. So we decided to put on a comedy night in the community theatre where I worked. So we used to do it, but I didn't perform then. I just used to book the acts, you see. And then eventually we split up and I moved to Brighton, where I live now. And when I moved to Brighton, I was sort of looking for ways to sort of meet new people and kind of get involved in the community. And I was in a pub one day and uh, some new owners had taken it over and they said, we've got a function room upstairs. We don't know what to do with it. So I said, well, I've, I've run comedy nights before. I can put on some comedy nights in your room above your pub. So that started, that was in 2008, I think that was. And I started this little, and it was called the Funny Farm because it was the Farm Tavern was the pub. <laughs> so we had this little gig up there. And um, I'll show you what, I had a good eye because my um, my main uh, compares were Joel Domit and Josh Widdicombe. Oh, well, there you go <laughs> James, then. You... <laughs> James Acaster. So when they were just starting out. So I had a good eye. And then uh, my dad used to come down. So it was once a month this night, my dad would come down and, and watch it. And then very suddenly that summer in 2008, my dad died. Um, he was only 60 and he just had a heart attack. And that oh. was that. And when something like that happens and when someone's young, you know, 60 is young now, really. And my dad was such a vibrant man. like He loved life. And um, he was very encouraging. I mean, like he was a bit of a raconteur, a bit of a joker himself, right. you know. And I was always a little bit in his shadow, maybe. If we were, you know, sort of if I was out with him or whatever. Um, but he'd always said to me, why don't you do stand up comedy? Like you should have a go at that. And I said, oh, no, don't be silly. I couldn't. I just like it. You know, I don't think I could do it. And then when he died, I just thought, you know what? I'm going to have a go because if I don't, I'll always wonder. Mm. And so that was um, I did a stand up comedy course at the Comedium in Brighton in 2009. And then I started gigging in 2010. So I was what was I then? 30. 33, 34, I think, when I started. Right. And that was that. And I, you know, I didn't really ever envisage it would become what it's become, you know, a full-time job, yeah. my career, my yeah. future. I didn't envisage that at all. You know, it was just a little thing I was going to have a go at and it just kind of snowballed from there, really. So why, um, so you're saying that in a way it was your your dad um, dying that galvanised you into action. Yeah. Um, and did you feel that you would, did you feel at the time that you were doing it because of that reason? That oh, very much so, I think. Yeah. And and I think because my dad had these very strong worldview of you get one life and you enjoy it, and he was, um, you know, he did enjoy it. To to you know, sometimes I always say my dad was a great dad, not necessarily a great husband, but a great dad. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. You know, and uh, he had this philosophy of you can't take it with you um uh you know of just enjoying the moment and I very much took that on board in fact my first ever solo show was called you can't take it with you and was sort of about my dad's philosophy of life really about seizing the day and and um 
And so, yeah, I definitely feel that if he hadn't died, then I wouldn't, I don't think, have started doing stand-up. I think partially because, um, you know, I I just wouldn't have had that trigger to do it. But also I think, like, I don't know if I would have... I'm often sad that he doesn't get to see me do it. Sure. But because he was so large in the life and he was such a raconteur, I'm not sure I would have done it in front of him. Mm. I'm not sure I would have thought, who am I to do it? He's the funny one you know Mm. so it was sort of a passing on of a mantle in a way a little bit of you know well I'm not here now to be the funny one so you you can go and do it now interesting yeah there there are lots of ideas and and in your comedy it's very thoughtful um is it for you I mean what is it for you primarily coming back to the why you're doing it are you Mm. are you entertaining or are you communicating what do you what are you doing I ask myself that every single day. (laughs) What am I doing and why am I doing it? Um, I primarily it's entertainment. I think stand-up comedy. You've got one job, and that is: are they laughing? You want to make people happy. You want to. You want to make people. You want to make people laugh. That's your job as a comedian. And if they're not laughing, well, then either they're not your audience, or you failed, or something's gone wrong in that interaction. And I never set out to, you know, be one of these sort of. Oh, I have to make a difference or I have to make, you know, teach people something or anything, you know, cause I, I'm quite self-deprecating. I'm like, who am I to teach anyone anything? I haven't got a clue, <laughs> you know, and to think that I, I have is, you, you know, don't crikey, don't take advice from me. Um, and I always say, I always want my audience to come away from my shows feeling better about their own lives. Cause they're looking at me going, well, at least we're not her. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that never happens. I think, you know, you can mine your own sort of insecurities and your own data and people can relate to that because we're all insecure and we all have these, you know, um, ways of looking at the world, really. But what sort of happened by accident, I guess, is that I sort of fell into doing more topical comedy. So doing Mm. the news quiz on Radio 4 and doing uh, Mock the Week and things like that. And of course, what happens when, particularly at the moment, when you're doing topical comedy, is that you can't hide your worldview. Right. you know, it comes out in the jokes that you write and it comes out in the things that you say to a certain extent. I mean, often social media is a blessing and a curse, obviously, because people watch you on an edited TV show and they think they know who you are and what your beliefs are and what your principles are mm. and will then comment on you but from what they think you are, which is mostly wrong, um, you know, or mostly not what you believe or, or what you think. Um so you are sort of sticking your head above the parapet there. And I found that very difficult because never in my life before have I had to sort of make any sort of statement of who I am, what I believe in, you know, that no one's cared. Who cares, you know, before. But you I are doing it in, in now in, in this medium. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now it feels something like. something about what you think. Yeah. And that I have to be able to, and I've always said this, you know, in, in comedy, people say, oh, you can't say anything anymore. You absolutely, rubbish. You can say whatever you like, right? <laughs> There's, free speech does exist. But also the other thing that exists is consequences of free speech. And that's what I think people can't get their heads around. You know, it's not that you can't say the things. It's that if you say them, you're going to be challenged on them. Mm. You know, there are consequences to things that you say and you, have to be able to take that so anything you say in stand-up comedy it's not good enough just to go oh it's just a joke that you know you have to be able to stand by why you felt that was okay to make not that I have to justify every joke I do because if I had to do that you know someone somewhere is going to be upset by everything that you say and and I always think you know the point I always make is look 
comedy is subjective. We all agree with that. You ask anybody and they'll agree, oh, yeah, there's some things I find funny and some things I don't. So then I find it bizarre when you say something that they isn't their cup of tea, you know, you're not their cup of tea. They get very angry at you for it. And it's like, well, it's fine. You don't have to like my comedy. That's fine. There's people who do and I'm playing to them. You watch what you want to watch. There's... I do notice that actually on social media when people criticise comedians mm. and they go, you're not funny. Mm. And you think, oh, so-called comedian. Yes, yes. You know, that oh, the old so-called comedian. You say, just because you don't like my <laughs> exactly. comedy doesn't, doesn't make me not a comedian because guess what? I'm paying my mortgage with it. And, you know, <laughs> I go to rooms full of people laughing every night. So someone's enjoying it. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's a, all that actually demonstrates is the sort of, sense of entitlement of that person that every piece of entertainment on every medium out there of which there are millions should be catered to them personally Mm, mm. you know and all that does is show their sense of entitlement it's like when you you know there's a new series of MasterChef or something they go well I don't know who any of these so-called celebrities are (laughs) you go well do you know what if they've got five million YouTube subscribers (laughs) they are celebrities whether you've heard of them or not five million people have are you (laughs) conscious um Maybe not at the time, because of course, if you were doing these things deliberately, it might be terribly earnest and not 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 come across that well. But are you mm. sort of looking back at, at your output? Do you think there are um, things that you ideas that you're particularly keen on communicating? I mean, would you mm. say because? Well, what do you think? I think I'm quite an open book, like, and I always have been really. And I so I had a lot of mental health problems through my sort of teens and twenties, and I've recently been diagnosed with ADHD. Mm last year which has been a massive thing in my life and for the first time since I was 18 I'm no longer on antidepressant medication which is a huge thing that's been a great relief and and absolutely and and obviously when you mine your own life in stand-up comedy and because that's my job to do that to sort of mine my life and comment on the world around me you know that's what I've chosen to do and then what happens is obviously people then relate to that Mm -hmm. so I'm not necessarily I get people quite often will message me saying, thank you for talking about ADHD. It it sort of made me go and seek out help or, you know, thank you for talking about depression. Thank you for talking about that or uh, or being child free, for example, is I did a show Mm, about being child free and that got a lot of people saying, thank you for saying the things. Now I didn't say those things to set out to make a point necessarily, you know, to set out to go, I'm going to be the comedian who talks about this. I'm just mining whatever is in me. Mm. And those are things about me that I can mine for comedy. If that then means that someone else can see themselves in what I'm saying and doesn't feel alone and doesn't feel like they're odd and different and weird, um, you know, or it makes them go and seek some help that they need or whatever, then that is an added bonus. You're glad about that. That I'm absolutely, absolutely yeah. glad about that. And, and, and I'm touched by that and sort of really... When I spoke openly about my ADHD diagnosis, I did it quite quickly and I sort of undenied about it, about whether to, you know, talk about it in my comedy or on social media or whatever. And I thought, you know what? I, I was 44 when I diagnosed I was diagnosed. If I'd been diagnosed at 18, there's a whole world of pain I could have saved mm, myself. Mm. So, you know, if only one person who's 18 looks at that tweet and goes, Oh, hang on a minute, that rings a bell, then it's worth putting it out there. You know, because I'm already, I already put everything about my life out there. What's one more thing? <laughs> you know? um, so, yeah, I I'm, I don't set out to be a sort of, you know, I'm going to change the world. Because if you think you're going to do that, then you, you can't. But if by what you do, that gives some sort of comfort to some people or helps some people, 
well, can't ask for more than that, can I? Occasional nostalgia, knowing where and who you are, making most of the here and now and putting everything out there. Thank you, Angela, for telling us what you believe. Thank you, Andrew. That was Angela Barnes telling us about her life and her outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the second episode of the fifth season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about Humanism, Humanist UK and the work that we do, you can find out more on the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider joining up as a supporter or a member. You can find out more about humanism too by purchasing the Sunday Times bestseller, The Little Book of Humanism, available at all good bookshops. 